Welcome to Do Theology, where we keep doctrine in its place. We continue our critique of the redemptive historical or Christocentric hermeneutic today. Last episode, we talked about how we believe that this hermeneutic is unnecessarily narrow in its approach, flawed in its practice, and it cannot be self-authenticated as a methodology. Today, we respond to some feedback we received on these points, and we share one additional issue that we have with this approach to Bible study, namely that systematic theology drives the hermeneutic. More on that after the music. Neither Bethel nor Hillsong meet the biblical definition of a true church. Did you know that Jesus was born again? Is his view heretical? If it isn't, then there's no such thing as heresy. It's not just a black and white issue. There's an issue, there's a question of moderation and how damaging and how harmful things are. Not every act of divine revelation is equal in authority. Angelic forces, angelic reinforcement. I mean, it's, it's hard to even respond to that, isn't it? It's, it's mind-numbing, it's blasphemous. When the apostles use the word atonement, they do not depict an angry God. It's cryptic. It's watered down. It has nothing to do with the judicial aspect of the Christian gospel. The most important of all doctrines is that the Bible is the word of God. They have different ideas than you do. You don't have to automatically kick them out of the kingdom. Well, Ken, I have to apologize to you again. Yes. For the same reason as last time, kind of. I, I ate in front of you again. This time it wasn't a meatloaf sandwich. It was a tuna sandwich. And, but it was it was still on Melissa's homemade sourdough. That is good. Different I, loaf, because it's been a couple weeks since we recorded last. Well, as we were discussing those things and you were stuffing your face, I didn't even have the video in the foreground, so I didn't even see it. So, ah. Yeah. Well, just so you know, I ate a tuna sandwich in front of you. And instead of lightly salted Lay's, I went with my other favorite... I was going to say second favorite, but these might be, I might like these more than lightly salted. Ooh. The sweet Southern heat barbecue Lay's potato chips. I've just, I'm a huge fan. Well, you know, now that, um, now that I can taste things again. Uh-oh. Um, I might have to go out and get a bag of those. Yeah. What, so. what, what happened here, Kenny? What do you mean now that you can taste things again? Yeah. So our family had COVID for while we're on the tail end of things, uh, I've just been released from quarantine myself and Liz and the kids, uh, well, they'll be, uh, they'll be released early next week. So release the kids. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so your second bout with the Rona. Yeah. How about that? Had it last we're, year. We're, we're playing a little bit injured today. This is like the Michael Jordan flu game for you. Yeah. No, if those watching on YouTube know that a lot of times I, I stand up for these, I'm sitting down. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not Poor that uh, I, I could have stood. Not that that's that big of a deal, but eh, just a little little more comfy today as I mm-hmm. rest upon my laurels. Ah, yes. Laurels. <laughs> Indeed. Well, and, and our listeners, those who are uh, faithful listeners may remember that I had ants in my office not that long ago. Ants have disappeared, but now we have You've a mouse upgraded. in the... <laughs> a, a mouse, at least one, maybe an army up. of mice in the church building. So I'm in constant terror, not knowing when this thing will crawl up my pant leg. Um, if I if I yelp, 
while you're in the middle of some really important point, it's probably because there's a mouse in my pants. Just uh, the thing you have to say is something's got a hold on me. Yeah, yeah, that's right. From that's, the Ray Stevens. Yes. The, Mississippi squirrel. School Revival. Yeah. If you've not Something listened got to that, a hold on me. <laughs> hey, listeners, do yourself a favor. Just hop over to YouTube and type in Mississippi School Revival and enjoy that little chestnut of history. The day the squirrel went berserk in yeah. the first self-righteous church. Yes. It's good stuff. Yeah, well, so uh, that's so. Just so you guys know, we're not exactly like in perfect conditions for recording this episode today, based on those things I just said. Uh, Ken probably has more of a viable excuse than I do, but uh, <laughs> uh, here we are anyway, recording this episode for the sake of you, uh, as we continue this series on hermeneutics and specifically continuing our critique of the reformed hermeneutic. Yeah, so our last episode, you know, as it's gone out and people have listened to it, you know, we, we knew that not everyone was going to agree with us. We went in knowing that, um, that, that anytime you talk about things of theology and hermeneutics and things in a public space, you just know that there's going to be people that disagree. And, and we did get some feedback and some responses, and we wanted to kind of address some of the points that some people made, uh, maybe clarify a few things, and, and hopefully that is, that is helpful. So we're digging into the mailbag a little bit, and then uh, we'll come back around to one additional point of critique that we have outstanding. The mailbag. Yeah. Hey, we got sound effects. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> yeah. Well, so. let's uh, introduce the first one here, Ken. Uh, we got a we got a letter from someone named Alex. I guess we don't know if this is uh, a male Alex or a female Alex. True. Um, my guess I is I think it's it, a male. I guess it's a. I'm I'm guessing it's a male because uh, I don't know too many females that. Uh, open letters this way saying, Hey fellas, hope you're doing great. Well, sorry, Alex, we're assuming your pronouns. Yeah. Uh, He he says, hope you're doing great. (laughs) So, uh, we're not going to read the entire email, but just, uh, just some portions of it here. Um, and give our responses to them Hey fellas, hope you're doing great. You know what? We are, except for the things that we've already mentioned. (laughs) (laughs) Alex writes, I had a contention with how you interpreted Riddlebarger's The New Testament Tells What the Old Testament Means. Saying we look at the Old Testament, quote, in a meaningless fashion, end quote, is not a faithful interpretation of what he said or he believes. That's Riddlebarger. The New Testament obviously adds to the fulfillment of so many Old Testament prophecies and sheds light, i.e. turns the light on, to the hope that those in the Old Testament had in the coming Messiah. It is undoubtedly a blessing to be able to read the Old Testament in light of the New, but that doesn't mean if we only had the Old, it would be meaningless. Certainly not. And I just pause right there and say, we agree. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I get that's, That is correct. That um, we, the, If all we had was the Old Testament, it would not be meaningless. It is God's revelation. Like we, we absolutely agree with that. But the point of disagreement between Alex and, and ourselves is is how we uh, discussed Riddlebarger's comments as we played them in the episode. He goes on to write, to say that he views a discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, or, quote, is changing the meaning, end quote, is ridiculous. So mm, we want to Ridiculous, eh? Yeah, ridiculous. Did we just pull that out of thin air, or do we have some reason for saying that? 
Well, the fact of the matter is, you know, so as I'm as I'm reading this critique, part of me says, well, maybe you should be taking this up with Riddlebarger rather than us. Um, you know, it's it's not our goal to misrepresent anyone. We want to say that up front. Um, and this is essentially what this this is uh, is an accusation of of misrepresenting. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that Riddlebarger himself was the one that used the analogy of you're in a dark room and you can't see what's in there. You're bumping into things. And then the New Testament turns the light on and then you can see what the Old Testament actually means. So, yeah, if we're looking at the other end of that analogy or the, the translation or the point of that analogy, what is he saying? If he's saying if he's not saying that it was unclear, then what is he saying? Yeah, it's it's. If we were to press him, uh, press Riddlebarger on this issue, uh, do you think he would uh, say that the Old Testament is meaning? I don't think we said that Riddlebarger said that the Old Testament's meaningless. Right. I, I think what I what I said, um, and it, there looks like I think he quoted me in the email that <clears throat> using Riddlebarger's paradigm, you're left looking at the Old Testament in a meaningless fashion mm. if you don't have the New Testament. That's that's the way I frame that. And when I said that, I'm not meaning you can't understand the words on the page. I, I don't think Reformed people say, yeah, if you do away with the New Testament, then you just it's just like babble on a page in the Old Testament. You know, you, you look at where it talks about anything and it just says, you know, <laughs> that that's not what I'm saying that they're saying. Um, however, very clearly, Riddlebarger said on multiple occasions, the New Testament tells us what the Old Testament means. Ergo, if take you away don't, the New Testament. <laughs> yeah, if you don't have the New Testament, <laughs> yes. How are we to understand the Old Testament? Right. And 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 he makes it a point, and he doubles down on it in multiple occasions. Uh, I've read his book uh, on millennialism, and uh, this is addressing uh, Chris's uh, or not Chris uh, Alex's contention here that um, that to say that Riddlebarger thinks that the New Testament changes the meaning of the Old Testament, it's ridiculous. Well, in Riddlebarger's book, A Case for Amillennialism, on page 51, he writes, this is Riddlebarger, that the Old Testament prophets and writers spoke of the glories of the coming Messianic age in terms of their own pre-Messianic age. They referred to the nation of Israel, the temple, the Davidic throne, and so on. These all reflect the language, history, and experience of the people whom these prophecies were to whom these prophecies were originally given. Now, this is the key mo- uh, point here now, but Riddlebarger goes on to write, eschatological themes are reinterpreted in the New Testament, where we are told these Old Testament images are types and shadows of the glorious realities that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And there are other places in this book where Riddlebarger goes on to use that reinterpretation terminology. He absolutely is saying that the New Testament changes the meaning of the Old Testament by reinterpreting what has already been revealed in the Old Testament. So when he talks about these examples, the nation of Israel, the temple, the Davidic throne, you could put in the land promises too. He didn't list that one, but I'm sure he would accept that being added to it. The Old Testament believers, Old Testament saints, pre-Messianic people of God— when they received from God in his words, that's important to note, these promises that talked about the nation of Israel, the temple, the Davidic throne, and the land, when they took them at his word and believed him, 
and trusted in those promises as being what he said they were, well, they didn't actually understand what he was saying is what Riddlebarger's saying. He was yeah. actually promising something else, but because of their context and because of their own age, God had to use these other words that definitely meant something to them then, but wasn't actually what he was communicating. So the New Testament comes along and says, here's actually what was behind those promises. This is the real deal that yeah. you can read about in the New Testament. And those guys in the Old Testament, even though those were the words from God, God wasn't actually promising those things. He was promising something else. Right. So we we do think we were being fair with Riddlebarger uh, and critiquing the substance of what he actually is seeking to communicate, which, again, Alex goes on to write, and um, he goes on to write, this is the, the last uh, paragraph on his email, says, I think the critiques of redemptive historical was not done in good faith. It sounded as if you took liberties with the interpretation to make your stance more level-headed or the more obvious interpretation, and it's more nuanced than that. Now, again, our goal isn't to misrepresent anyone, right? We, we took quite a bit of time at the beginning of that episode to lay down, seeking to do things from a very fair, balanced perspective. Okay, this is what the redemptive historical approach is like. This is how they arrive at their conclusions. And when we quoted Riddlebarger, we were not seeking to misrepresent him in any way. We're simply dealing with what it is that he actually said. And, and we're trying to take the theological nuance— yeah. And make it plain language as to what's actually being said. I mean, so that paragraph you just read from Riddlebarger, I went on to give some commentary on that paragraph about what he's saying. And I'm trying to say it in plain language because this is what he's saying. It's just, it's what he's communicating. Yeah. And I'm sorry if that comes across as, well, that's not what we believe. Well, then tell me what he actually means then. Um, we need to apply a redemptive historical <laughs> hermeneutic to Riddlebarger's comments. Is that what you're saying, Jeremy? <laughs> yeah, kind of. Well, I guess it, that, that might be it. I don't know. Well, uh, maybe maybe the issue is, okay, I, there's not a monolith of how everyone yeah. approaches these things. Oh, so sure. we, we want to recognize that. Not, so perhaps the issue, though, is not necessarily with our understanding of Riddlebarger. Perhaps the issue is just that there's more individuals that approach things differently from Riddlebarger, and Riddlebarger isn't the be-all and end-all of, of uh, this approach. Um, but I do want to say as well that I, I don't know if it's... So obviously, when you disagree with someone, you are going to be critiquing it in a way um, that people are not necessarily going to agree with fully. But does that mean that our critiques were done in bad faith? Hmm. If if it was done in bad faith, I certainly was not aware of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, we do think that our stance is the more level-headed and more obvious interpretation. Like, we do think that is the case because that's our position. Everyone believes that. But just because we're disagreeing with, with somebody else's stance doesn't mean that we're approaching it in bad faith. So. Another email we got kind of starts with the opposite statement. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Chris, Chris you know who you are, Chris. Hi, Chris. Love you, brother Chris. He says, I wanted to start by thanking you for your careful study and attention to major proponents of my position. You represented my position fairly, and in so doing, you loved your Reformed brothers well. Thank you. Hey, he recognizes the good faith. All right. Well, then he gives a few comments about our critique. Again, we're not going to read the whole email, but one of his comments about the criticisms we made, he said that responsive, or, or not responsive, responsible, redemptive historical hermeneutic preaching— 
does have restraints that keep it from allegory. One of the things we talked about in the last episode is how uh, there's no real line that you can draw objectively. There's no standard you can make when it comes to allegorizing older texts or spiritualizing texts. If you're going to take that liberty, then you go all the way. And he says, well, there actually are restraints. And he talks about Dennis Johnson illustrating this by using Edmund Clowney's diagram on page 231 of Johnson's book on hermeneutics. And uh, Ken, you've got that book and you've got some thoughts on that. I do have this book and he's got this this chart here and um, I'll probably figure out a way to make that easily more easily visible in the video. Um, Yeah, so I really appreciate um, uh, Chris bringing, you know, just kind of mentioning this and giving us page numbers and everything for his uh, for his points of critique. I thought that was really helpful. Um, In this book, Dennis Johnson goes on to kind of explain how. On his chart, he's got these these lines, and uh, there's a place where we're starting in the Old Testament. There's an Old Testament event or institution, and we've got to figure out a way to make this relevant to today through our preaching. And there's different pathways that people can take to get there. Uh, one is the pathway of allegory, of just straight up allegorizing the text and um, trying to make connections between Old Testament uh, realities and events to the, to our New Testament place, uh, doing it very directly through allegorizing the details. Um, and Dennis Johnson is critical of that approach. Another invalid thing is is what he, moralism, where you just basically Old Testament stories and events end up just becoming examples to either follow or to forsake. Uh, and then he lists out what he believes is the legitimate pathway to get from the Old Testament event to our preaching, where you're either recognizing symbolism or typology in the history of redemptive revelation and seeing how the symbolism and the typology finds its fulfillment in Christ, which has significance to our present day application, which finds its way to our preaching. And I'd recommend anybody, you know, Feel free to pick this book up or to, to read through this section. It's, it's it is pretty helpful in some regards of of how Dennis Johnson views things, but I do have to say I'm unconvinced that this is um, the best approach. And honestly, through after reading through his section and his uh, argument for why we can't go with allegory, but we look at the symbolism and typology and the fulfillment in Christ, and then to our t- to present day significance, it kind of just sounds like allegory with extra steps. <laughs> like that's that's just my so, so summarize that with the plain language sentence. So with allegory. You're trying to draw connections between what was happening in the Old Testament, the Old Testament events, the Old Testament institutions, and saying, and, and essentially being imaginative for New Testament realities and almost kind of using it il- illustratively. Um, I think we've talked about different examples of what allegory looks like. Um, um, like Song of Solomon. You okay, there example, you go. Right? Yeah, Song of Solomon. Uh, it's an allegory of Christ's love for the church, right? Uh, there's the details in the text. Ah, okay, we're going to look at that. It's just, it's just, it's an allegory of, of that. Whereas the redemptive historical approach is trying to look at symbolism and typology and, and draw from uh, 
there's there's places in the New Testament that legitimately talk about typology and that there's certain things in the Old Testament that are types of Christ and basically trying to expand that to all aspects of, of Old Testament teaching. And so anytime we come to anything, we first look and see, okay, is this is this symbolism teaching something? Are there uh, is there Old Testament truth here in the symbolism? And then how is that symbolism ultimately fulfilled in Christ? Is there a typology here that may not be explicitly stated in the New Testament, but there's a typology that, okay, I can see a connection here, that, and that's finding its ultimate fulfillment in Christ, and then from there, drawing down to how we understand that passage for today. And, and I just, as I read this, and as I examine and consider the argument, it's still allegory, but with extra steps. Like, there's, there's extra steps of looking for a typology or a symbolism, rather than just jumping straight to allegory and trying to be imaginative with it. Mm-hmm. So, and you have to ask the question too. Okay, responsible reformed preaching has restraints. Well, who defines what responsible reformed preaching is, right? I mean, because you just get into that really subjective area of where you can spiritualize text or make allegories or spot types and shadows. That just gets totally subjective. Um, yeah. So it's it's about being. And, biblical meaning and, you you look at allegory where the Bible points out allegory. You look at types where the Bible points out types, and you you draw a line there. Right, and and who's this? Why is why is the restraint? What the restraint is? Where it is? Right, as yeah. as part of the issue too. Like there's there's really not. Uh, perhaps there is somewhat of a consensus within the Reformed community, but why why is it where it is? Um, yep. Yeah. His last comment had to do with something I said when I said that um, that the redemptive historical method or the Christocentric method is centered on the church. I went on to say that the Old Testament people of God show that clearly there's more going on than the church. And what I was saying there is that in the Old Testament, there was no church. There was the nation of Israel. Jesus came uh, and said, I will build my church. That's where we come from. Or the church began with the finished work of Christ. There was no church before that. And so I'm saying, look, there's more going on in the Bible than just the church. You've got the whole Old Testament without the church. But Chris goes on to say, quote, since most people using the redemptive historical method are Reformed slash Presbyterian, I think it's worth pointing out that they would see the Old Testament people of God as the church. And he goes on to quote Herman Bavink. Bavink? Bavink. Bavink. I think. Bavink. No, there's no second I. I don't know. Bavink. I see his name a lot. I hardly ever hear people say his name. Um, And basically just saying, look, the believing Israel uh, in the church or in the Old Testament, that's the church. So um, the point here is that um, from a reform perspective, there is not more going on than the church because since day one, God's been building his church, which is believing Old Testament saints all the way up through today. So, um, Response to that is, yeah, I recognize that, but that's wrong. <laughs> I, I, I recognize that that's your position, but that's a, that's not the Bible's position. So, yeah, yeah. So we, we don't believe the church was in the Old Testament, right? That's 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 a basic thing, yep. and we would argue that on hermeneutical grounds, right? Just yep. just following things through. Um, the church is a mystery, Paul says. Right. Uh, the bride of Christ is a mystery. It was not revealed in the uh, Old Testament, but it's now revealed in the New Testament because we are now New Covenant members uh, by the blood of Christ. He is building his church now that he wasn't doing before he went and finished his work on the cross through the 
through the grave, rising again. Yep. That's the foundation for the church. That's right. So when, when Jesus spoke of the church, he spoke as it, of it as a future thing from where he was in his ministry. So the church is built on the foundation of the New Testament apostles and prophets. There we go. So, so yeah, uh, we do want to say that we really do appreciate the... Um, the feedback that we've gotten and just the interaction again we've we've said this in the other episodes we want to say it again we think this conversation makes our podcast better and it hopefully it it helps uh just clarify our language clarify how we talk about things and we encourage you to continue to write in at points of agreement or disagreement we're we're all ears and willing to uh, look at things more closely so thank you to both alex and chris for your feedback All right, so let's get to the final critique today, which is that systematic theology drives this hermeneutic. Rather than this hermeneutic leading to a systematic theology or a biblical theology, we have systematic theology being in the driver's seat, determining how the adherence to that theology approached the Bible. Instead of figuring out an approach to the Bible first and letting that drive the student of Scripture to a theology— This system starts with a systematic theology that then governs the way that the student approaches the Bible. So before we get into some examples of that, some details of that, let's say a couple of things. First, we like systematic theology, don't we? Absolutely. We read read systematic theology, we teach systematic theology in our churches. Systematic theology is good. Do you make a hard distinction between systematic and biblical theology. I know that some people are kind of uptight about that. Are you someone who defines those really uh, strictly? Yeah, I think historically you have to define them differently. Um, I think we get systematic theology after having done good biblical theology. Um, for those for those listening, if these are categories you're not familiar with, biblical theology is, is really kind of the idea of moving through uh, the pages of Scripture and discovering the theology that is present there about different things as you move through it. And so you're kind of just kind of unpacking and unfolding it as you go, whereas systematic theology is really just kind of opening up the whole book and and pulling out everything that the Bible says on a given topic and putting that into kind of uh, synthesizing everything that the Bible says about this topic and and writing about that. And so there's the, the systematic mm-hmm. approach to theology looks at things that way. The biblical approach is more running through, uh, discovering theology as you move through the pages of Scripture itself. So it's not that systematic theology is unbiblical theology. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's an important thing, because you hear those categories brought up, and people can kind of think, oh, well, I should stay away from systematic theology then, and that's certainly not the case. Right, and, and both are necessary. Uh, we yep. To do good systematic theology, you have to be a good biblical theologian of willing yep. to go where the text goes as you move through the pages of Scripture. I keep my—I've got a bookshelf over here where I keep my stuff I grab— frequently my books I grab frequently like my commentaries on books I'm teaching through I keep on this bookshelf I take them from the one behind me but I always keep my systematic theologies here too I've got what I'm looking at right now I've got Frame MacArthur and Mayhew Calvin's Institutes Burkhoff Grudem's second edition and Charles Ryrie I keep my Geisler ones back over here because I don't ever really use those. Uh, but I see your Geisler ones yeah. uh, right there, the four volume. Uh, 
Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't break those out. I set, uh, I set Geisler right next to Calvin's Institutes just to see if the fire will start or not. Uh, so I've got Burkhoff over there. I've got, I do have Schaefer's systematic theology, which is not necessarily my favorite to look at, but, uh, yeah, Grunem, uh, Ryrie, and I got part of John Frame's, um, um, Theology of Lordship series. Uh, I'd like to get the rest of that. And there's a few other volumes. Systematic Theology is a, is a area of my, uh, library that I would like to expand in the near future. Sounds like it needs some improvement. It that's does. for sure. Gotta have, so. I gotta get MacArthur. I gotta get Frame. Yes. You know. So we, we love and appreciate systematic theology. We teach it. It's important. That's one thing we want to say. We also want to say there are a couple of keys to our hermeneutic as we get into this particular critique, a couple of key elements to our hermeneutic that we want to make clear, but it looks like you have something to say, Kenneth. I just want to make one more um, acknowledgement about something. You know, we're about to critique this uh, this hermeneutic as being a hermeneutic that flows out from the theology rather than being the other way around. And we recognize that there's people in our camp that do the same thing, that start with their theology. It starts with their, their theological system of a dispensationalism and lets, and lets that be the controlling thing for their theology. Yep. And that's bad, too. It's not limited to one theological perspective, yeah, that's for sure. Absolutely. There's, there's a lot of people that, that distort lots of texts of Scripture because they're trying to make it fit their dispensational system, and that's equally unhealthy. So we just want to make yeah. that acknowledgement. The proper approach should be we have our hermeneutical approach, and we let that dictate whatever what the results of that as we move through scripture we let that dictate where we end up theologically but yeah carry on okay a, a couple of points that I just want to make clear because they're going to come up in this critique one is that we believe in our system of hermeneutics our approach to the bible we believe in the importance of reading the bible progressively uh, progressive revelation is not just the way that God revealed Scripture. We believe it's also key in formulating our biblical and systematic theology. That um, be, Because this has to do with the other point, which is the difference between meaning and significance. Because as you're reading the Bible progressively— um, and we can just go really elementary on this and just think Old Testament, then New Testament. So just Old Testament— understanding what is said there first, and then letting the New Testament build on that. We believe that what was revealed first, just take the whole Old Testament, has a meaning in its own context that's wrapped up in the author's intent as the author was inspired by God, and that there we have the meaning of the text. And what comes later, say the New Testament, may expand on the significance of what was revealed in the Old Testament, but never reinterprets, as Riddlebarger says it does, never changes the meaning, never transforms the meaning, never evolves the meaning in any way, but the meaning is fixed and wrapped up in that original text. Again, the significance of that may expand. Uh, mm-hmm. Something that we would all agree on that might be a good example to think through is the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 gives us this picture of the Messiah and what the Messiah is going to do. We understand that you go to Isaiah 53, and in Isaiah's context, all the meaning that's there is fixed. 
Nothing in the New Testament changes what Isaiah says, although we get, of course, more detail because we see how it played out. We see the Messiah coming, living, dying the way he did, rising again, I mean, bringing more, uh, more pieces alongside of that prophecy from Isaiah that kind of fill out the picture. But it, that particular puzzle piece that Isaiah gives us is fixed. It doesn't change its position. It doesn't change its shape. It doesn't change its color. It stays in its place. And though other pieces come alongside to fill out the story, it never changes that original piece. And so we believe that there's a distinction between meaning and significance in that way. And that's very important to remember as we begin to critique the reform perspective. Yeah, I think this is, in a way, um, this might be at the heart of many of the disagreements between uh, people from from our perspective and people from a uh, more reformed hermeneutic pr- perspective, redemptive historical perspective, a lot of our contention is not about, um, a lot of our disagreements is not necessarily about, uh, I don't know the, the words that I was just looking for just left, but the, <laughs> a lot of the contention revolves around the enduring significance of what an Old Testament text means or perhaps if there even is enduring significance that's been expanded upon or rather or rather not the significance is changed altogether and we've got to be yeah. mindful of that You'll, and and it starts for us it starts with an alignment between the divine author and the human author yes so we we're not saying that the human author let's just take Zechariah for example in the old testament we're not saying that Zechariah became became omniscient when he was inspired We're not saying he had the mind of God and knew everything that had happened and was going to happen. We're not saying that. But what we are saying is that when Isaiah wrote down the words of his prophecy, his message to Israel, that what he was writing was exactly what God wanted him to write and what he intended to communicate and what was communicated to the people of Israel and what Zechariah understood is what God intended them to understand and to communicate. We reject the notion of some hidden meaning that yes, God was, I mean, this is what the hidden meaning side would say that God inspired certain prophets and he gave them these words that they understood, but there was actually something deeper and spiritual behind those words that God was holding back on from them. Mm -hmm. And this is essentially what Riddlebarger was saying in that quote you read from earlier, Ken, where, yeah, he gave them the words Israel and the temple and the throne and the land and all of that. But there was something deeper that he was holding back. And we don't get to see that until the New Testament. And so we have the advantage today as the church, Gentiles coming in and saying, oh, those Jews just had no idea because God held back until the New Testament. And we're, we're saying that that's not what's going on. Yeah. And, and this is so so it becomes critical for us to view, to read progressively that that this plays into the the meaning stays the same. The significance gets expanded. It, but that it, expansion happens as we move progressively through the scriptures, which is really the, the presuppositions that we talked about at the beginning of this series about the harmony of the scriptures and how it's non-contradictory. That assumes that there's, if there's information in the Old Testament, it can only be built upon. Mm-hmm. It cannot be changed. Mm-hmm. To change it would be a contradiction of what has already been revealed. So it can mm-hmm. only be built upon and we can see the, the significance expanded without 
jeopardizing the original meaning that was given by the original author. Yeah. And so our critique then for today, again, we're maybe getting to it now finally, (laughs) is that the Reformed hermeneutic is driven by covenant theology, which does not allow for fixed meanings or for progressive reading. Now, to illustrate this, we'll go to a clip from someone other than Kim Riddlebarger, a quote from Alistair Begg. I'm going to listen to about a minute and a half of this. This is from a sermon (laughs) titled Preaching the Gospel from the Book of Ruth. And he's going through a list of observations that he's made about preaching Christ from the Old Testament. So we're picking up on his fourth observation. We'll listen to his fourth and fifth, um, as well as uh, some additional commentary, and then we'll talk about it. Here we go. Fourthly, it is at least my assumption that the need for the proper Christian use of the Old Testament is an urgent need. And I presume that that is a shared sense of urgency on the part of those who have convened this particular conference under this particular theme. The urgency is there because some of us have been scared away from the Old Testament by the extent of scientific and historical criticism. We ought not to be. And others of us have neglected the teaching of the Old Testament, have been inhibited by certain models of dispensationalism. Fifthly, I am assuming that we will be helped if we learn, as Alec Matthias suggests, to read the Bible from back to front that it will be a tremendous help to us if we work from the back to the front. It will be easier to find the tributaries, if you like, if we stand at the mouth of the river and then work our way back from there. Now, this, I think, is fairly straightforward. It comes out in all kinds of illustrations uh, that the Bible is like a detective novel where all these various themes are woven together for a period of time until there is then a great denouement which makes sense of all the interwoven pieces. Or the Bible is like a two-act drama, where if you show up for the first and leave before the second, you will be left wondering how it concludes. If you come late and arrive in the second, you will annoy everybody around you by constantly saying, who is this person and why are they here? B.B. Warfield used the analogy of the Old Testament as being like a richly furnished but dimly lit room. Only, he said, when the light is turned on, in the person and work of Jesus, do the contents become clear. And so, for example, we need the book of Hebrews in order to deal with Leviticus. We can't make sense of the prophets without the gospels by way of interpretation. And the message of Ruth cannot be understood apart from the coming of the Lord Jesus. A couple more assumptions, or observations, actually, not assumptions— The Old Testament Scriptures can and should mean more to us than they did to the people of the Old Testament, for we live in the light of their Christian fulfillment. And our pattern in this is clearly Christ addressing Cleopas in Luke chapter 24. And indeed, it is hard to imagine Jesus doing what he did in that incident leaving out all that is here for us in the richness of this little book. The little book of Ruth is what he's referencing uh, there at the end. But 
He says, and I love Alistair Begg. He's my favorite preacher to listen to until he starts talking about stuff like this. <laughs> we need to read the Bible from back to front, he says. He says that we need the New Testament to deal with and make sense of the Old Testament, even to understand the Old Testament, and that Luke 24, Jesus addressing Cleopas on the road to Emmaus, that is uh, the foundation for this belief, because um, we live in light of the Christian fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. Therefore, we must read the Bible this way. So what Alistair Begg is saying is, our theology states that all things in the Old Testament are unable to be understood, unable to be made sense of. They're dark unless we have the New Testament because all things have their fulfillment in the person and work of Christ and in the church. That's their theology. And so let's approach the Bible from back to front. Yeah. So the theology is driving the approach to the Bible. Yeah. And he used the same, uh, the same analogy that uh, Mr. Riddlebarger used. Um, man, from B.B. Warfield, he said. From, from B.B. Warfield, yep. So there's, there's several that are uh, using that same approach. Man, there's just, there's just so much that um, could be addressed in that. Uh, but he brings it all back to that same passage that we addressed in our last episode. We go back and listen to that, Luke 24. Is Jesus actually saying what... Alistair Begg says that Jesus is saying. Was Jesus actually telling the strangers on the, or the people on the road to Emmaus, was he saying to them, yeah, there's no way you could have understood the book of Ruth until now because every word in the gospel of Ruth was about me. Yeah. He's not saying that. And I would suspect the vast, vast majority of reform folks would agree with us in saying that's not what he was saying. Okay, well, if he wasn't saying that every word in the Old Testament was about him, then what was he saying? Well, he was saying that there were certain things in the Old Testament that spoke of him, and he was making those things known. We are limited in knowing what those things are by what the Bible tells us those things are. If we start making jumps where the Bible is not making jumps, there is no limit to what connections we can make. And we are totally in the realm of subjective allegory and spiritualization that actually is mishandling the Word of God. It's not using the Word of God the way it was intended to be used. And we start calling parts of the Bible, namely the first two-thirds of it, unclear, which Alistair Begg just did which Kim Riddlebarger does, which B.B. Warfield did. And we say we believe every word of the Bible is inspired and thus clear. Yeah. I mean, that's a kind of a drop the mic moment there for you. Just boom. But it's true. And, and if we are to take seriously the word of God, and we know that our Reformed brothers do take the word of God seriously, but uh, when these kinds of statements are made, it is, it is really... Well, they definitely take the New Testament us. seriously. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to, right? That's this the New Testament. Well, so basically, the when Begg and Riddlebarger and Warfield say these things, they don't get that position or that approach to the Bible from the Bible itself. So that that's kind of our point here. They don't they don't get that approach to the Bible from the Bible itself. There's a theology. There's a systematic framework that leads them to believe that the church 
uh, in the person and work of Jesus Christ are the literal fulfillment of all things that were promised in the Old Testament. Therefore, the Old Testament must be viewed in a certain way that's different from the way the New Testament is viewed. Um, the, the approach to the Bible is governed by their systematic theology. Right, which is essentially a, a covenantal framework and approach to the Scripture. Um, the, the covenantal framework, there's a, there's a, first of all, we recognize, every, everyone recognizes the covenants in the Bible, right? There, there are covenants. Uh, God has operated with humanity in relation to covenants that he has made with humanity yep. at different places at different times. Everyone recognizes that. But it's, it's how we understand the significance of those covenants and how those covenants govern humanity that we would have some disagreements with our uh, covenantal brethren uh, from ourselves. Um, I don't know if you want to, if we, how deep we want to go into that approach and that framework. Um, well, we can just basically give an overview. And for the reform guys listening, we're not going to do a great job uh, outlining this aspect of it uh, because this is a series on hermeneutics, not a series on theology, though we recognize since in many ways, your systematic theology drives your hermeneutic. We need to uh, explain the theology. There's the view of three covenants in the Reformed camp uh, in covenant theology. There's the covenant of redemption made between the persons of the Godhead in eternity past. The covenant of redemption, then the covenant of works that was issued to Adam in the garden, that he was in covenant with God to uh, keep the commandments of God perfectly, and in so doing, he would live. And Adam failed in the covenant of works. And so ever since Adam fell, we are now existing, all of humanity is existing in relationship to God through the covenant of grace when they trust in him, believe in him, when they're saved by him. Uh, they are united to God through the covenant of grace. And so, um, again, from the fall onward, all the other covenants that you can think of, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, those are all subsets or, or different reflections of this overarching covenant of grace, even the new covenant. Um, it's all been uh, a part of the covenant of grace since that time. And so there's this big theological framework that goes not just from Genesis to Revelation, but really eternity past to eternity future that is covenantal and the Bible then is viewed through that lens. Mm -hmm. um, that's how you get to the point of saying that Israel in the Old Testament was the church, right? Or even Noah and his family, they were the church, okay. right? Uh, that's how you get to that point is because you're seeing it all under the same covenant. There isn't something new that's happening with the people of God getting a new label and being a new type of entity in the New Testament, as we would say, but it's the same entity. You could say the church or uh, you could say the church is in the Old Testament as it's in the new, or you could also call the church Israel today and say, well, the church that exists today is the true Israel. So Israel, it's not like Israel has ceased or that Israel has fallen off the map or anything like that, but that the church is just a continuation of the true Israel. They would point to that aspect and say, this is a um, consistent theological framework. There's continuity between the Testaments and the uh, this is our systematic theology that governs the way that we view the Bible. I imagine they would, that there would be many who would attest to that. Yeah, and, and so the, and the problem that we have, again, with this is that we think it's backwards for how we approach reading Scripture. To start 
with a theology and then to essentially reverse engineer a hermeneutic that allows you to uh, make consistent sense of how you understand these different texts, especially the Old Testament as it relates to the New Testament. That is a backwards approach to how we ought to study Scripture. Now, we but rec- someone, <laughs> someone like uh, Graham Goldsworthy comes along and says, well, wait a second, all of the Bible is Christian Scripture, or even, you know, Sidney Gradanus, I think, kind of makes the same argument, where we don't, when we get saved, we start in the New Testament. We start with the person and work of Jesus. That's how we come to know God. We enter into covenant through the person and work of Jesus. And so why wouldn't we study the Old Testament through the lens of the person and work of Jesus and the church? That's that's the argument. They, they say that actually we as dispensationalists don't take the Bible literally because we're reading it in terms of progressive revelation instead of starting with the new and then reading it backwards, as Alistair Begg said. So we're the ones actually not being literal. Right. And, and this is, you get into the, the issue of what what really ought to be driving the train when it comes to our theology every there are people who who abuse their their theology no matter from every theological camp that allows their theology to drive their hermeneutical train and we we rec- we mentioned that earlier at the uh, as we started this critique section um, so certainly there are dispensationalists that do this as well and we want to say that that's not right again the proper order is that we come to Scripture, we read it, we study it, and we go wherever it leads us. Mm-hmm. And if we are starting with our theology, and this this could be coming from a variety, and we talked about this when we, in, in our uh, introduction to this series, when we talked about different approaches and hermeneutics, the the theological interpretation of Scripture, and 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 people that have a um, uh, perhaps an uh, overemphasis upon creeds and confessions where we're starting with these theological frameworks that are Mm man-made, whether that's dispensationalism, covenant theology, creeds and confessions, or whatever else. We're starting with those things and allowing that to drive us wherever we go theologically, rather than starting with the text of Scripture itself and allowing it to tell us what our theology ought to be. It's backwards. Yeah, and I think it's this can only happen within covenant theology because what covenant theology does when you when you use that systematic theology as a starting point you are starting from a place of fulfillment you're starting from a place yeah. of arrival because that theology says we've we've been we've fulfilled things the person and work of Jesus and the church now that exists now this is the apex it's the fulfillment of all things therefore we have the whole Bible, it's done, and we have, um, you know, this ability then to see Christian things in the Old Testament because we are now the ultimate fulfillment. <laughs> if, if we're the ultimate fulfillment, we go back to the Old Testament and we read their, the promises made to ethnic Israel about the land and other things, and we say, well, that's ultimately fulfilled in us because that's my starting point. My starting point is that we are the fulfillment. And so you never actually challenge that starting point. You just have this confirmation bias almost when you go back and you read the Old Testament. And one thing that may help some people to think through this is that we're talking about God dealing with real people in history. (laughs) This isn't like 
the Lord of the Rings trilogy or something that's complete. And now we go back and we look in the first thing or, or in the first movie or first book or, or whatever. And we go back and we, uh, I've not read Lord of the Rings. So I, this is probably a really bad <laughs> illustration for me to bring up, but this is God talking. Like you go back to old Testament, God talking to his people, Israel, he's making actual promises to actual people. And so to just pretend like, well, that's easily changed and reversed. You're messing with an actual event that took place wherein God clearly communicated something that, to use Daryl Bach's language again from our interview with him, it seems pretty transparent. (laughs) God's making a pretty transparent promise to these people, pretty obvious, pretty plain. And to go back and just say, oh, he didn't actually mean that. We're messing with God's promises. Yeah. And that's a, that's a scary place to be. Absolutely. And, and we're, we're coming up on an hour here, so we should probably try to wind this discussion down, but, uh, we can't, we can't wind it down without one more from Riddle Barger. Okay. <laughs> you mentioned creeds and confessions and church history. Let's, let's have this clip play. I think it's less than a minute or right around a minute. And then we'll respond to that because that is also a part of this. Why do they assume their systematic theology? Why do they start with their systematic theology? I do think a big part of it is because the testimony of church history and feeling like you've got church history on your side. And so Riddle Barker talks about that here in this clip. Now that being said, the postmillennial position in that broad sense, not of the, the contemporary theonomists, the contemporary evangelical postmillennials, but, but the amil postmillennial position has been the historic position of the Christian church. That's important to be aware of. Listen to this quote from John Walver, and I think this is very telling as to how significant this is. This is quoting from Walvard's book, Millennial Kingdom. Quote, Walvard's a dispensationalist. Because amillennialism was adopted by the reformers, it achieved a quality of orthodoxy to which its modern adherents can point with pride. They can rightly claim many worthy scholars in the succession from the Reformation to modern times, such as Calvin, Luther, Melanchthon, and in modern times, Warfield, Voss, Kuyper, Machen, and Burkhoff. If one follows traditional Reformed theology in many other aspects, it is natural to accept its amillennialism. And the weight of organized Christianity has largely been on the side of amillennialism. And I say in response to that, thank you. That's exactly the point. That's a huge, huge admission. Now, since amillennialism has its root deep in historic Christianity, and especially in the Protestant Reformation, That means the burden of proof lies with the dispensationalist to prove his case. And evangelicals just simply assume the opposite because they happen to be raised in dispensationalism and just assume that, well, you know, my pastor is dispensational, therefore it's got to be true. Well, how does that argument differ from the the medieval Roman Catholic who said, you know, I don't know anything about the Bible, but my priest believes it, so, okay. Um... It doesn't mean amillennialism is true. But it means that the newer position, dispensationalism, assumes the burden of proof. They have to overturn the tradition not only of Rome, but the tradition of all the Protestant reformers and all of those churches that hail from the Protestant Reformation. Okay, Mr. Riddlebarger. Because of your view of church history and your particular emphases on aspects of church history that means you start a hundred yards ahead of us in this marathon wow yeah that's rough church history began 
October 31st, 1517, apparently. <laughs> and we can't go back any further, but that's yeah. where it began. Yeah, because he's saying amillennialism and postmillennialism, those were the views of the reformers. Yeah. So everything else has the burden of proof. Never mind the fact that there were premillennialists in the first, second, and third century, and that's historically and that documented. dominated yeah. the... I mean, that was the dominant view. And now we're not saying dispensationalism, but we're saying premillennialism. Yeah, and... Um, and and as if it's a huge big win to to point to history when dispensationalism as a system is only beaten by covenant theology as a system for what a hundred years, eighty years, seventy years, something like that. It is not a huge amount of time, so it's it's yeah. a bad argument. Don't try to say, "Hey, I've got reformers on my side, so I win." That's just not a good way to go about Christian debate. <laughs> and there's, a, there's a point that he makes that I agree with. You know, if you say you're a dispensationalist because my pastor is a dispensationalist yeah. and that's what I've always believed. Right. Okay, yeah, that's wrong. Study the Bible. Yeah, and if you say uh, I'm amillennialist because the reformers are amillennialists, it's that's no also different. wrong. It's no different. <laughs> How is that any different than saying, well, my priest, I don't know anything about the Bible, but my priest tells me this. It's He's doing yeah. the same thing that he's criticizing us of doing. So. Yeah. Okay, well, there we go. There's more fodder for the email. Uh, again, send your emails to show at dotheology.com. Find us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter. Send us messages. Reach out to us however you'd like. We'd like to hear from you and interact with your emails, perhaps on the show. So let us know what you're thinking. And we do have to say we've enjoyed this hermetic series. Um, we're probably pretty well at the end of it here. Uh, maybe one we're, more. We're also very burnt out on it. Yeah, <laughs> we are very excited and looking forward to going back to our regularly scheduled programming, talking about different issues and, and topics that that are uh, um, hopefully we'll find um, be edifying for a, a broad range of, of individuals. Uh, so we're looking forward to that, and hopefully, well, hopefully you're not tired of this conversation as you're listening, but. Um, yeah, we are looking forward to getting back we, to... We will be back to more chart-based content. Yeah, so. there we go. Amen. Okay. Well, until next time. Theology. That was kind of a cool one. I hadn't done one like that before. Dustin doesn't like your blue headphones. I know. You mentioned that. I was about to make a comment. It's like, hey, my, my headphone earphones are still blue. Maybe I'll mention that in the episode. And yes, my headphones are still blue, Dustin. We've received some feedback from our listeners, one of whom has an issue with my blue earbuds. <laughs> That's what this episode is about after the music. <laughs> <laughs>